I was doing a little bit of study this week on the life of John Wesley. Who's ever heard of John Wesley? He was a revivalist of, uh, in, in England at the time, but also came over to the United States, uh, to the colonies in Georgia. But he is the founder of the Methodist movement. And here's what's really interesting about John Wesley's life. John Wesley held his, his ordination as a priest with the Church of England, the Anglican Church. And what's really interesting about John Wesley is he caught this vision for sharing Jesus for bringing people to this place of repentance and coming to Christ alone and growing in faith. But, but his methods were a little bit unorthodox. So what happened is he got kind of labeled as a bit of a crazy guy. Because he was sold out. He was sold out. And at that time, the Church of England, there was yes, there was some corruption. Yes, there was maybe some sitting back on their laurels, as it were. And so John Wesley catches this breath of God in his life and in his ministry, along with his brother Charles. And they start to preach. They start to preach Jesus. They start to preach repentance. And here's what's interesting is the Church of England, where he held his credentials as a priest, weren't all super down with it. And so he was not invited to a lot of pulpits. In fact, a lot of ministers would uninvite him. And so he found himself in this weird place where he had to start preaching out in the open air. And that means he just literally found a place where people congregate outside and started preaching. He had a really good buddy. Uh, John Wesley was an Arminianist. Uh, so anyway, and then one of his good buddies, George Whitfield, was a Calvinist, yet they got along pretty good. Amen? Okay. But George Whitfield was doing this open-air preaching thing. And so John Wesley, even though he didn't really like it, in fact, he felt guilty about it. He went to preach in the open air, and, he, and people were coming to Jesus, and he felt guilty that people were coming to Jesus outside of the church. But he had to get over that. But here's what's really interesting. As they kept pushing, and as the movement grew, the movement was within the Church of England. It wasn't apart from, it was within the Church of England, the Methodist movement. And here's what's interesting, because people came to them and said, hey, you need to just start your own thing. John, Charles, you guys need to just start your own thing. And here's, here's a, an excerpt from uh, Don Thorson. He did a study. It's called Calvin versus Wesley, Bringing Belief in Line with Practice, a book. And he says this, the question of division from the Church of England was urged by some of his preachers and societies. But most strenuously opposed by his brother Charles, Wesley refused to leave the Church of England, believing that Anglicanism was, with all her blemishes, nearer scriptural plans than any other in Europe. In 1745, Wesley wrote that he would make any concession which his conscience permitted to live in peace with the clergy. He could not give up the doctrine of an inward and present salvation by faith itself. He would not stop preaching, nor dissolve the societies, nor end preaching by lay members. These are the, some of the things that got him in trouble with. This is where his conscience was. But to the very end of his life, Wesley remained a priest with the Church of England. He remained united. And what's interesting about this is it wasn't just passive, it wasn't just passive aggressiveness he dealt with within his clergy peers. 
There were those that came out. There were mobs that came out when he came into cities and towns that came against him. And yet, he had this heart to stay united with the church. I think this is so interesting, particularly in a culture right now where we're all about deconstructionism. Some of you young people, you need to hear me on this. We're going to come back to this. There's a temptation for us to tear down everything that's been established. This isn't a new thing. This goes on every single generation has to walk through this temptation. Are there some things that need to get torn down? Yes. Do we tear it all down? No. And so Wesley, this young man, could have said, no, what I'm doing is working better than anything you're doing. There was stagnation and there wasn't growth in the Church of England at that time. And Wesley's movement of the Spirit in the Methodist movement was working and people were coming to Jesus. He could have easily said, I'm out. You have nothing to offer me. I'm out. I'm going to do my own thing because God is with me. But Wesley didn't do that. He was united with the church. And there's something about the presence of God in conjunction with the unity of the church. There's something about the presence of God in conjunction with the unity of the church. And I want you to get this, and we're going to dig into that. There's this moment of unity around the presence of God that gives us a picture of God's manifest glory. Remember manifest from last week. Clear or obvious to the eye or the mind. So if you have your Bibles, I hope, I hope that you do. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles. And we're going to be jumping in and out of a few of the chapters there. But 2 Chronicles, if you could just turn there. And while we're turning there, I want you to consider something. We often think about unity in a very homogenous way. We think often of unity as sameness. We, we, we think it's synonymous with sameness. And we've talked about this before. Unity is not sameness. It's not the same meaning. It's not the same word. And so as you're turning to there, I, I want you to consider our main thing statement for today. And if you're taking notes, write this down. Unity is differences colliding in common vision. Unity is differences colliding in common vision. And I use that word colliding on purpose. Because sometimes in diversity with a common vision, it feels like colliding. Right? There's friction. There's mess. There's stuff going on when we collide together as very different people from different walks of life from different cultures, from different upbringings, from different perspectives. Yes, some Calvinists and some Arminianists and some... And there's this collision of the church, of the gathered body of Christ. But there's a common vision that brings us together. Unity is differences colliding in common vision. So let's dig into this season of the life of Israel. We're going to just look at Israel back in... In Second Chronicles. And King David, prior to this, had this dream. He had a vision to build a temple for the presence of God to dwell in forever. This was his vision. He wanted to do this for God. He wanted to build this temple where God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, could have a home that was permanent. 
And that was a testimony to the entire world of the goodness of God. So 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 1 to 2 says this, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, at Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And he began to build on the second day of the second month in the 14th year of his reign. So here's Solomon, David's son, is building on the site that David has prepared. You don't miss this. That David has prepared. Solomon is building on the vision of his father. Unity is differences colliding in common vision. Even differences in generations. Even differences in the generation. This moment was bigger than just David and it was bigger than just Solomon. Here we see a generation building on the vision of the one before. This is important and and, and you can't miss this. But this isn't where it ends. David, though he, he did not build the temple in his lifetime, he was sold out to the vision. So David has this dream to build the temple and he says, Lord, I want to build a temple for you. And what does God say to him? He says, David, you got too much blood on your hands. You've been a king of war. You have too much blood on your hands. You will not build my temple. But David was so sold out to this vision that he prepared anyway. He prepared anyway. First Chronicles 22, verse 5 says, For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all the land. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. I want you to think about this. I love this picture of two generations coming together in this single-minded vision. There's this unity. They're different generations, different outlooks. David's looking at his son. He even says, hey, this, this kid is young and inexperienced. Who's ever been there? I feel that way. Half the time I sit around people that have been serving Jesus twice as long as I ever have, and I'm like, how am I your pastor? That makes zero sense. Young and inexperienced, right? But he trusts his son to carry on this vision. What's interesting, the movement that is Evangel Church, friends, has always been one of unity among generations. When we came to Evangel, that's something that's just marked this community of faith. And some of you are sitting here, I see some young faces, I see some people that are here. And you would say, you would amen this, that there's something about the DNA and culture of this community of faith here in Powell River that saw over the years this combining of generations, this building up of the older, investing in the younger, and carrying out this vision of knowing Jesus. There's something powerful about this movement. There's a culture that sought to bridge this gap between the young and the old. And David wasn't just satisfied with leaving the vision with his son. He was sold out to the idea of giving his son the best possible chance of success. Listen, boomers, Xers in the room. As long as you have breath in your lungs, your mission... And your vision 
is bigger than just your generation. God-sized visions span generations. And so you're called to invest in the next. Some of you, I've often had these conversations where you feel like my body just isn't keeping up with where my head is at, right? Some of you said that to me. I won't point you out. I won't even look at you right now. You have treasure that you've built up in the spirit that you get to invest in the next generation. The vision of your generation wasn't for your generation alone. A God-sized vision spans generations. What a beautiful picture. So I ask you the question, what are you leaving the next generation to build upon? What are you leaving the next generation to build upon? Because they can't build on your criticisms. They need more than just those sideways millennial comments. Or those, you know what's wrong with your generation remarks. They need investment. I need investment. We need investment from you boomers and you Xers that have known the presence of God and the moving of the Spirit. Young men and women, you need those that are older in this room than you. One of the things that I love about growing up is I always was tall. And because I was always tall, I always was forced to kind of have friends that were older than me. And, and I also grew up as a PK, and so as a PK, we'd often have these opportunities as kids to be with adults that came into town, preachers and evangelists and prof and all these people. And, and so I had this opportunity to learn how to sit with those that are much older than I and be invested in. Young people in this room, your calling is not to deconstruct everything the generation before you has done. Your calling is to look for the platforms that they have invested and given you to stand upon. Because we're all in this together. Your calling, whatever your age, is to walk in a vision that's bigger than just your generation. It's the differences of the generations that give legs to a vision that goes until Jesus comes again. Unity is differences colliding in common vision. No matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, you have something to contribute to this common vision that we have together as a community of faith. So, so what happens? We, we see the accomplishments of, of multiple generations coming together. This actually started all the way back in Moses' time, right? Moses built the, the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, this portable tent that they carried around with them to house the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant. And this is how they did. And, and so now there's this beautiful generational idea and vision about the presence of God being with Israel, his people, and the temple is built. 
And 2 Chronicles chapter 5 says this, and, and I, I had to fight my temptation. My temptation is to always summarize. As a preacher, I'm often thinking about attention span. And just as I was writing this sermon, I couldn't get away from the idea that I just needed to read God's word here. So I'm not going to summarize the story. We're just going to dig in. Is that okay? Can you do that? Can you engage in the word of God today? Engage the spirit of truth that's with us right now? So chapter 5, 2 Chronicles, starting verse 1. Thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that were David his father, that David his father had dedicated and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels and the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark, and they brought up the ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted were numbered. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day. I'm just going to pause for a moment. It's interesting. Whoever wrote this account must have wrote it before the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar comes later and he destroys this temple that Solomon has built. And what's interesting about that is the vision that David had and the vision that, that Solomon walked out was this idea that they were going to make a permanent place for the presence of God, right? Aren't you glad that, that that vision wasn't altogether correct? Right? Because if that was going to be the permanent place for the presence of God, Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. And yet Christ came, and, 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 and there's these clues to us as, as we look at the history of Israel and this temple and the work of the Spirit. Let's go on, verse 10. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for, for all the priests were present and had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jidathan, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Who's glad for unison in music? 
And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments and praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. It's interesting, everyone was there. This is the culmination of a vision that went back two generations and everybody shows up. And what's interesting is the priests were all ordered by divisions and not every division consecrated themselves. So the way it worked is there was a division of the priesthood that would take a year of service at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, where the Ark of the Covenant was and they would do the sacrifices on, on behalf of the people and it was just one division a year. Yet in this moment, we see that they disregarded their divisions and every single priest united around consecrating themselves. So I, I want to just dig into that idea really quickly. Because we're talking about this series, the presence. The presence of God. Now, another way to say consecrate, another way to say they cleanse themselves for service in the temple, is they walked in deep repentance. They walked in deep repentance. And that's what the sacrificing of these animals represented. This, this national repentance and remission of sins through the sacrifice and the shedding of blood of these animals. Because with sin came what? With sin came death. And God required death to cover the sin of the people. And so this is the way God had set up this, this way of walking in the presence of God through repentance and through sacrifice. Now I want you to consider for a moment the reality of Christ Jesus as our sacrifice. The Old Testament required this ongoing sacrificing of animals to cover the sins of the people. But Jesus' sacrifice finished that system once and for all because he was the perfect lamb that was slain for all the sins of the people. Not just of Israel, of the world. Not just of that generation, but the generations to come. For your generation, for you, for me, right here, today, 2019. Part of this moment of the presence falling and filling the temple was the result of this great national unity around repentance. Around repentance. Do you remember the last time you had a big fight with somebody? Some of you were like, yeah, it was about 45 minutes ago on the way here. Maybe it was with a friend or a spouse or a family member. Now, I want you to think through the emotions of that fight. Because when you get in a fight with someone, you never feel closer together, do you? No, of course not. Right? When you get in a fight with someone, especially if it's serious, what, what, what does that do? That drives a wedge, right? Drives a wedge between you and that person, that individual. You feel like there's, there's this rift between you. That, and, and that's a great illustration and, and kind of a thought process and filter for the way we think about sin and our relationship with God and his presence. When we walk and lean into our brokenness, 
and into our sinfulness and into our selfishness, we give space for a rift and a barrier between us and the presence of God. But I want you to think through the emotions now of the reconciliation of that relationship. You know, whatever that fight is that you're thinking about with that friend or your spouse or your kids or your family member, I want you to think about that moment where you reconciled, where you dealt with the elephant in the room and you forgave one another. Think about the intimacy and the depth of relationship that that forges going on and moving on. And that's the work of Christ. That's the work of us coming in repentance, being vulnerable with our brokenness and our sin, and asking Christ Jesus to come and forgive us. And in that moment, we open the door for a greater understanding of the presence of God. Because often, we're, our brokenness is the thing that's standing in the way. And as we think about renewal and revival, We can't think of those things without thinking first of deep repentance. Every revival in the history of the church since Jesus left us and ascended to heaven started with a deep repentance. A deep desperation for the presence of God and a deep repentance. Getting out of the way. Now, I want to be careful in saying this because it's not universally true in every circumstance. And we've talked about, you know, in the past where God sometimes removes the feelings of him being close to proximity with us, right? We call that kind of the valley experiences of our spirituality, the, the, the wilderness experiences. But he uses those to do some very deep things in us. So I don't want to say this across the board, but there are times when you're not in proximity to the intimacy and the presence of God because you're allowing barriers of sin and brokenness to stand in the way. And repentance is the vehicle that you take to drive through those walls and those barriers. We've said this before, sometimes experiencing more of God is about becoming less of you. We've, I've stood up here before and I had a cup, right? And we had it full of stones. And I fill it full of water, right to the brim. And then I ask the question, how can I get more water into this cup? I have to remove stones. If I remove stones, I can get more water. Here's the deal, church. We think of revival in this mindset that somehow God is withholding his presence and that there's seasons and moments where he'll pour out more of himself. What if, what if God is pouring himself out and we're getting in our own way? What if our prayers for revival and renewal in Canada are more about us getting out of the way and praying a prayer like John the Baptist in that season that Jesus came on the scene saying, less of me, more of you. What if, what if revival is on the move and we need to get out of the way? In an act of repentance, as individuals and as community of faith.
this goal of a journey of looking like Jesus more and more each day, this journey of repentance. Unity is differences, but sometimes those differences is just the different ways that we sin and mess up. Sometimes unity is differences of our brokenness, coming together in repentance, a common vision, pursuit of the presence of God, having grace for one another. Verse 12, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph and Heman and Jedathan and their sons and the kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals and harps and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters, and it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with the trumpets and the cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord, is filled with the cloud, filled with the glory of God. Finally, we see this act of worship. And it's not just any song, but it's a song of unity. It's a song sung as one. It wasn't about the oneness of the beat or the rhythm. It was about the oneness of the heart of worship in the people that day. It wasn't about the trumpeters keeping everything on beat. It was about the people being of one mind and one heart desperate for the presence of God in their act of worship. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Don't ever underestimate the potential of a gathering of worshipers, friends. In fact, in fact, I believe with all of my heart, when the church gathers for worship, there should be an expectation that we have as believers knowing that Christ inhabits the praises of his people. There's something about the oneness of heart in our act of worship as community that is powerful. And it's not because you are moving the heart of God as much as you are being moved by the heart of God. That's what worship does. And does it move the heart of God? Yes, it does. But that's really not the power of worship for us. The power of worship for us is not moving the heart of God, but on aligning in the presence of Jesus around his heart, around his heart, around his vision, around his priorities. That's the heart of worship. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. But the heart of worship is this coming under a unity and obedience, a declaration of his greatness and his trustworthiness. Unity is differences colliding in common vision. And that's what we're going to do here today to finish. We're going to sing an old song, an old Matt Redman song. Because as I preach today, I'm not about throwing out the old. Some of you are like, amen. I didn't mean it that way. 
But we have an opportunity here, friends. We have an opportunity. To ask the question, am I, am I hungry for the presence of God? This is all about the presence. It's all about, instead of pursuing the gifts and the power and all of these things, it's about pursuing presence, knowing God. Knowing God. Face-to-face. Intimacy. Intimacy. And we get to do that. Look around this room. Look at, look at the young. Look at the old. Everybody in between. We get to do this together. God called us for this season, for this moment together as a community of faith to pursue the presence of Jesus. We get to do this together. So Lord God, we come, young and old, with a common vision to know your presence, to know you and to be known by you. Would you help us in this moment to get out of our own way? Would you give us grace, Lord God, to lean into our brokenness and invite your presence there? To lean into our mess-ups and our weaknesses and our hang-ups and invite your presence there. Lord, we repent of our brokenness. We repent of those hang-ups. We repent of those sins that so easily entangle us and get in the way of our pursuit of knowing you. And Lord, today, we declare with one voice, with one heart, in unison, you are good.